Welcome to Sleep Talk, the podcast about all things sleep, brought to you by sleephub.com.au. Here are your hosts, Dr. David Cunnington and Dr. Moira Junger. So welcome to episode 55 of Sleep Talk, the podcast talking all things sleep. And welcome again, Moira. Hello, Dave. Hello, everyone. So in this episode, we're going to be talking about the use of medications in pregnancy. And whilst we'll focus on narcolepsy, because that's a really good example where there are a range of different medications that are used, what we'll talk about really does generalise around a number of sleep medications in pregnancy. It's an episode I've wanted to do for a while because there's really not much out there to guide clinicians and women. Um, So I wanted to develop a resource uh, for that. So Moira, what's been happening for you this month? I guess obviously not going out much. <laughs> We're still in um, semi-lockdown. I guess in terms of sleep, I, I think that it's just been very busy, as I've said in previous episodes, of like clinically and things like webinars and other education. It's, it's, it's a high demand. I think that there's, it's a perfect storm really, isn't it? The, the COVID-19 pandemic is, is a perfect storm for sleep problems because you've got the circadian disruption of people staying at home more and, not, and the blurred boundaries of work and home and you know, not getting the life cues that they used to get. And then there's also the potential for a lot of angst, a lot of anxiety, a lot of uncertainty, which, of course, increases hyperarousal, decreases sleep quality and quantity. So I feel like I've been yeah, phenomenally busy, actually, with, with all of those things. What about you? What's what's topical for you? Yeah, I'd agree. The And we're moving into a different phase, at least in Australia. We're in the very fortunate position in the phase of this pandemic of now trying to work out, well, how do we come out? the other side of that and what's the new normal and that's also Mm. keeping us uh, pretty busy in the healthcare area of what how do we deliver healthcare in a new normal you know what yeah that's right what does it look like yeah Yeah. exactly what does it look like what do we change about how we've previously delivered healthcare because it's not the same and just thinking oh well we'll just get back to usual is just not not where it's at it's good to see you developing your expertise in webinars you really have been delivering a lot of really great content Maura yeah, really enjoying that. And I think not, not only just the sleep, yet the other part of my world as well, like outside of sleep, other interests in psychology. So there's a lot of health anxiety, particularly now that the restrictions are lifting. Like how do we come out of this? And we're super scared of actually getting, getting sick, being taking up a lot of my time. So the theme for this month's podcast is use of medication in pregnancy. And as I talked about, I really wanted to develop a resource and have people get an idea about where they could go to get more information and also some ideas about um, how to manage this both for clinicians but also for women throughout their pregnancy. And it is a complicated area because it's a moving feast. There are different phases of pregnancy and if I look at a lot of the drug regulatory recommendations, it does break it up into the conception or preconception and then early pregnancy, which is the highest risk of a pregnancy for malformations or fetal defects. And then there's the second and third trimester, which are somewhat more stable phases of pregnancy where there's lower risk of drug-related side effects, but more of a risk of other medical complications and often change. And then the breastfeeding uh, phase when people have delivered, but then thinking about how drugs might be transmitted via breast milk or what might be the impact on the newborn. Moira, with your pregnancies, did this ever come up as an issue, use of medication? Not for me personally, I'm being fortunate not needing to be on any medication, but certainly clinically, it's a really big issue. It's a very big issue that has been part of my practice for a long time now. 
um, not only the sleep medication, but in general, like just general mental health conditions, like and people taking antidepressants and the like. I don't think there's a lot of information. I've, I mean, I'm, I'm lucky I've worked alongside the likes of you and, and other sleep physicians where I can feel really confident that that's safe in pregnancy. But would you would you say there's a bit of discrepancy even, even within sleep positions of what you deem safe or not? Oh, that's my personal experience. I don't know whether that's correct. Oh, absolutely. And that's what the research bears out. In doing some background reading for this episode and trying to think about, you know, why produce this content, some really nice work. And actually, I guess Michael Thorpe published some of this work. There was some surveys done both of uh, prescribing clinicians for women with narcolepsy and then women with narcolepsy and what happened with medication. The majority, in fact, over 80% in some of the studies of the prescribing physicians just said blanket no, no medications under any circumstances for women with narcolepsy through pregnancy Mm. based on really very little data, just based on Mm. opinion and that almost... Well, being cautious too, I guess. It's just being an abundance of caution. Exactly, an abundance of caution. So wishing to do no harm in Mm. essence. Um, and so the majority of women are not having any medication throughout pregnancy, and absolutely that's the most cautious approach in terms of if you're thinking just about uh, medication risk, but it also exposes women then to significant hardship through pregnancy because one of the surveys mm. of the women with narcolepsy showed that the, only the minority worked at all throughout pregnancy. So about two-thirds stopped work for the entirety of the conception and pregnancy period. So think of that yeah. as at least 12 months before then the baby and then another six or 12 months off work uh, with breastfeeding mm. and looking after the baby. So that's a major impost on quality of life. And, and, I, and I think we sometimes undervalue that by going for the abundance of caution. So it's a really tricky thing to balance. And I know there's a lot of fear around that. A lot of, in fact, a lot of the times I see people with narcolepsy, there might be women in their early, well, in their 20s, pre-children, and one of their biggest fears, of course, or something they, they do, like we talk we talk through is what if I can't have children or what am I going to do? How, how can I have children? How can I have nine months or more without this medication, et cetera? So it's a, it's a huge, huge topic. And pregnancy itself is pretty hard. I mean, I, I think some women sail through it, but, in, you know, I've never sailed through it. It's a pretty difficult time in terms of you're pretty tired, really, really, really tired in people who don't previously have, you know, hypersomnia. So, yeah, it's a, it's a tricky thing and I'm so glad we're talking about it today. So there's a number of general principles that I'll just talk through first and then that'll help in understanding some of what we talk about with Michael Thorpe uh, a bit later. So as we talked about with pregnancy, there's not great information. So there's not these black-white information about medications. So the regulatory bodies in different countries have different approaches for advising both women and clinicians about the risk of medications. So in Australia, we have a category system that rates medications as um, A, B, C, D, X and increasing mm. risk as you go down the, the alphabet. And there's a really nice website run by our, our drug regulatory body, the TGA, where you can essentially log on, put in the name of the drug and it'll tell you what category it is. But interestingly, the US shifted away from that categorization about five years ago in 2015 and the FDA has shifted to more of a system that doesn't provide that, think of it as a yes-no type of information, but provides more a collation of all the background information about particular medications to then inform physicians and women to then make an informed individual decision balancing perceived risks or potential risks 
against potential benefits or risks of not being on treatment to, to really guide that more individualised approach, with the argument being that categorisation of A, B, C, D or X really just says, right, it's category B3, you're off. Even though, mm. even though for that particular woman being on medication may be really important and the very small risk of a B3 medication may be something that they're willing to tolerate. Each of those countries do have databases you can search and I quite like, I actually find myself searching each of them to try and get that categorical thing for a medication as well as some of the background information to then have a discussion uh, with women yeah. about about that. And as I talked about earlier, it's also important to think about the phases of pregnancy the highest risk with medication is actually in the conception phase and the early pregnancy phase. And that's actually really tough because mm. conception doesn't always occur when you want it to occur. And no, that that's may be yeah. a prolonged process as well that's mm. even more challenging for women because once you're obviously mm. pregnant, people cut you a bit of slack once you're into the late second trimester, early third trimester. They can see you're pregnant. They may place lower expectations on you if, even if you're feeling tired. But when you're getting around your daily life just wishing to become pregnant, that's tough if you're not able to access your usual medication. A common thing we see is managing women with insomnia and maybe they've got comorbid depression or anxiety, so may need to be on antidepressant medications or sedative medications. You know, that becomes an individualised decision in pregnancy. The majority of the antidepressants are not considered in the Australian system, Category A, which is completely safe. They, most of them are in category B, which is a suggestion of uh, either there may be some animal data saying there may be some issues or that they've just never been tested to be proven to be safe. And so it does come down to an individualised uh, discussion. Um, but it's important because use of antidepressants is very common in the community and the risk of relapse uh, of either depression symptoms or anxiety symptoms during pregnancy and then particularly in the postnatal period is real and can be very yeah. uh, derailing and very impactful for, for women. Absolutely. Well, I mean, we all we know that the increased risk of postnatal depression if your pregnancy has been really tough and if the birth's been really tough. And, and, and people in this category, they're not having their normal medication, their normal supports would certainly be in that category, I, I would think. So to use narcolepsy as an example around use of medications in pregnancy and some of the thinking uh, in this area... Uh, I spoke to Dr. Michael Thorpe, uh, who's the director of the Sleep-Wake Disorder Centre at the Montefiore Medical Centre in New York. So thanks very much for helping us out on the podcast, Michael. You're welcome. Happy to be here. So what are some of the issues for women with narcolepsy around pregnancy? The most important issue, of course, is uh, medication, what to do about their medication during pregnancy. That's the thing that worries uh, most women. You know, many women feel that they... Um, really just can't get by without taking medication. They usually come for advice on whether it's to stop the medication, whether to reduce it, or, or just how to handle their medication during the, the course of the pregnancy. Some of them are a little concerned about the possibility that there may be changes in the narcolepsy during pregnancy too, either a worsening or... But really, main, main concerns are about uh, medication. And what about for women with narcolepsy? Are there greater risks outside of medication uh, with pregnancy? Well, no greater risks other than those due to the narcolepsy itself, of course. Uh, you know, if a woman uh, does come off medication during the course of the pregnancy and uh, she has uh, cataplexy, she's at risk of, of injury, uh, not only from the cataplexy, but also because of sleepiness. So 
you know, usually they have to modify their uh, lifestyle in some way. Uh, for example, if they're not going to be taking medication during pregnancy, they're not going to be able to drive. And uh, they have to be careful about uh, any situation that they may be in when, if they were to get a cataplectic episode, they may put themselves in danger. But there's a, the pregnancy itself doesn't have any direct negative effect uh, at all on the narcolepsy. Yeah, both you and I have managed many women with narcolepsy through pregnancy. And sometimes one of the concerns women ask me about is, you know, will they be able to manage a newborn or manage throughout pregnancy? And I've certainly not seen that as being an issue for women with uh, narcolepsy. Yeah, I mean, after delivery, there's usually not, not too much of an issue. Uh, people can get back onto medication and get, and so long as their narcolepsy was relatively well controlled before, they can get back to control of it. But uh, but if there's some reason why they uh, that they can't take medication after pregnancy, then that can be an issue, particularly, again, if they have cataplexy. You know, they may be concerned about if something emotional comes up that, that may affect their ability to hold the baby. Yeah, and your point about needing to stop driving if people stop medication is important. So there was that survey published last year um, in the Journal of Clinical Sleep Medicine showed that 78% of women stopped pharmacotherapy during pregnancy, and then a third of them had to stop working through pregnancy. So it has significant lifestyle impacts if you do elect not to use medication in pregnancy. Yeah, it does. And, um, you know, that uh, article was uh, interesting in that it sort of implied that uh, most women uh, really didn't get much in the way of uh, ideal counselling about how to handle pregnancy. And so uh, there's a need for a lot more information for women uh, during pregnancy. Uh, for example, um, you know, there's a lot of uh, misinformation regarding medications, and uh, uh, one really has to balance uh, the risks versus the benefits. And in fact, uh, we we um, looked at all the medications and uh, in a paper that we did a few years ago, and and looked at the potential risk. And really, in therapeutic doses there's really virtually no risk uh, for any of the narcolepsy medications so long as they're taken in the appropriate doses. But, um, you know, the general recommendation, as you know, David, is that uh, most physicians would advise a woman not to take any medication during pregnancy, and I think that's still the best recommendation. If a woman doesn't need to take any medication during pregnancy, then certainly, uh, you know, don't take it. But uh, if they uh, are significantly impaired, and uh, you know, I've had patients in my office that are, when I've told them the best thing is not to take any of their narcolepsy medication, they've just broken down in tears and said, "Look, I, I just can't function. I mean, uh, it's impossible." And uh, and uh, so, you know, generally, what we tend to do is to discuss the the benefits versus the risks with patients, and then. Uh, come to a mutual decision, and I think that's very important. You've got to come to a mutual decision with the patient as to what's a, uh, the best for them. And in most cases, what we tend to do is to sort of reduce the medication somewhat so that they're more functional and able to uh, continue activities of their daily life to a large extent, uh, but at a lower dose than what they might normally be taking. And then subsequently, they can go back to, to that higher dose. But then again, uh, you know, there are some uh, women who prefer to uh, stop medication altogether. I mean, there is a risk of about approximately 2% 
of a woman, even if she's not taking medication, of having a child with a fetal malformation. And if a uh, woman takes medication, I always ask them, you know, if you took your medication during pregnancy and you did happen to have a child that had a, a, a fetal malformation, how would you feel? Would you be able to handle that? Some women tell me that, yes, that's no problem. I understand that there's a potential risk, even if I wasn't taking medication. Whereas other women say, look, I would never be able to handle that. And so therefore, I, I just have to stop medication totally. So it's a decision that has to be made between the clinician and the patient themselves. Yeah, I agree. It really does come down to clinical medicine and that sort of work we have between the clinician and the the patient or the person with narcolepsy, in the absence of really any evidence of harm for medications, and maybe that's different with the registry data that was published last year on modafinil and armodafinil, do you sort of stratify medications? Are there some you consider as sort of lower risk versus higher risk? Well, there are, there are a number of issues. I mean, as you mentioned, uh, uh, there was some uh, evidence that came out uh, from Canada uh, regarding modafinil. And um, in that, uh, there was data that uh, came from the uh, United States uh, Narcolepsy Pregnancy Registry that suggested that there was a higher rate of fetal malformations in women taking modafinil during pregnancy. It's interesting because that uh, was something that was uh, felt by the Canadian uh, medical agencies uh, that it required a, a sort of a black box warning for women during pregnancy. But didn't happen in the United States. And there hasn't been, to my knowledge, any direct source of that information that's become available. So I'm not quite sure just how accurate that information is. It certainly wasn't any information that was released through the United States uh, registry itself that I'm aware of. But anyway, I, I think just the fact that it's mentioned uh, would suggest that it's uh, wise for a woman not to take uh, modafinil during pregnancy and view of that until it becomes clearer as to what that data really means. In most cases, you see, the concern, if a woman has concerns about fetal malformations, it's really around the time of conception that is the main concern. And for the first 60 days or so of the pregnancy. So some women choose not to take medication at that time, around the time of conception and for the first couple of months after conception and then take it later in the pregnancy when there's less risk of any drug causing a fetal malformation in the second half of the pregnancy. So that's one uh, tactic that some, some women can do. The uh, other concern is, is uh, really around the time of um, delivery and breastfeeding and what medication can somebody take. For example, if there's um, uh, sodium oxabate as the main medication, a lot of people, uh, in my experience, have tended to reduce the amount of dose during the course of pregnancy. And then when it comes, the main concern is really that it's a sedative and depressant medication and, and that does get uh, excreted into the, uh, or secreted into the breast milk. And so the baby can be exposed to it in breast milk. And uh, so... What we generally recommend for someone who wishes to continue with their uh, sodium oxabate uh, after delivery is that uh, we recommend that they express milk before they take their nighttime dose of, uh, of sodium oxabate, then use that expressed uh, milk for feeding the baby during the night. 
and then uh, eliminating the expressed milk uh, first thing in the morning when they awaken. And the evidence is all that uh, because sodium oxalate has such a short half-life that really uh, recent studies have shown that it's uh, virtually all eliminated from the uh, from the breast milk and is no longer secreted into breast milk after about uh, five or six hours. So the next morning a woman can ex uh, express milk, uh, eliminate that milk, not give it to the baby and then continue to breastfeed during the day. And many women have done this uh, means of uh, dealing with their taking uh, sodium oxalate uh, during the uh, after the delivery. So we talked a bit about medications. What other general advice do you give women with narcolepsy about pregnancy? Well, I mean, the general advice, as I say, is to reduce the dose. It depends what uh, type of medication the patient's on. Um, a lot of my patients are on sodium oxalate, so we would reduce to the lowest effective dose in terms of uh, sodium oxalate. And uh, if they're on... Uh, other medications, I mean, up until the time that this information became available from Canada, we would tell them to take a lowest effective dose of modafinil, and uh, sodium oxalate and modafinil were probably the two commonest drugs that most patients were on. But, uh, you know, it's interesting that um, many people can actually get away with greatly reduced dose of medication during pregnancy. Some patients uh, will say that they notice their symptoms actually get better, even when they're not on during pregnancy. So it's not all doom and gloom if they were to stop their medication. So uh, there are individual differences there. Yeah, I agree. And often the second trimester for some women with narcolepsy seems to be a period where they can get by on quite a lot less medication and feel pretty well. And then by, right. the, by the third trimester, yeah, everyone expects pregnant women to be tired. So they're not, they don't stand out as much from the background population. Everyone's given them a break, if you like. And then what about management around uh, delivery? Do you have any recommendations about the obstetric team yeah. or instructions for the pediatric team? You know, I think uh, there is uh, a lack of information out there for um, uh, healthcare providers about uh, patients with narcolepsy and uh, around time of delivery. There have actually been cases in the past where people have had uh, caesareans recommended to them because they had severe cataplexy under the understanding that they would... Uh, have greater difficulty during uh, delivery. And there is some evidence that rarely somebody does have some difficulty uh, uh, during um, delivery because of severe cataplexy. But by far the majority of women are able to have normal vaginal deliveries without any, any difficulty at all. There isn't too much concern around the time of uh, delivery for, for most of these patients. And uh, I think the the average patient certainly can think uh, that they're and uh, be quite right in thinking that there's not going to be any problem with delivery of their baby because they have narcolepsy. Yeah, thanks very much, Michael. Pleasure. Yeah, so what did you get out of Michael's interview? Well, first of all, I thought, oh, I was expecting a New York accent and I thought, oh, he's Australian. And then I, then I really quickly realised he's definitely Kiwi, ex-Kiwi. Yeah, you've got, you've got it. A lot. Yeah, lived a long time. I think I, then I looked him up. I think 1970s even, 1970s, 80s, been in New York for a long time. But, yeah, really, thank you. I've really enjoyed that interview. What a, um, yeah, it seems like a lovely guy. I would personally be really happy to see him as a, as a you know, as my clinician and also clearly across, you know, done a lot of really key research. Speaking of which, I mean, tell me, I need to know a bit more, I guess, just even if it's anecdotal, what you know, what he knows about 
the rate of birth defects, et cetera? Like what are the actual risks of these medications in pregnancy? We don't really have good data to be able to answer that. Um, birth defects happen in women not even on medication and just they're part of normal pregnancy, unfortunately, and are more common than what we may perceive. So then if you're looking at something that occurs quite infrequently with medications and at a time when lots of other things are changing, it can be really hard to pick up that signal to really get an idea. But that modafinil registry study does give some insights into that, where around 300 women uh, were followed and the background rate of um, malformations was around 3%. Not insignificant. Oh, no, absolutely. So as, we, as I discussed with uh, Michael, the, that modafinil and armodafinil data is very compelling and compelling enough that now the recommendation is not to be on those medications during the conception, early pregnancy and even late pregnancy. Uh, whereas prior to understanding that data from the registry study, we would have taken the approach of trying to minimise the medication to reduce the exposure to medication, mm. which is a strategy that can be helpful um, for some medications because for some medications the risks are dose-related, whereas yeah, now we'd definitely just have people off modafinil. So, Dave, if you had to summarise your approach, particularly after speaking to Michael Thorpe, what is it now? What's a summary statement or two from you? Yeah, so really my summary would be decisions about use of medications in pregnancy have to be individualised for any given patient bearing in mind what are the consequences of not being on medication versus what are the potential risks of medication. And now in 2020, we've got good access to online databases that can inform us and provide us with that background information so that both women and their treating practitioners can have an informed discussion about the risks to make then a decision about what's going to be done for that individual patient. Well, thanks so much to both of you for that really, um, really good conversation. So if people are looking for more information uh, on this topic, uh, there's quite a nice review that was written uh, in the journal Chest earlier this year on using sleep medications uh, in a range of sleep disorders in uh, pregnancy and during breastfeeding. And then the general databases that I've talked about, so the TGA's database uh, for classification of drugs in pregnancy, as well as information from the FDA in the US. And there's a really nice... US-based database called LACTMED, uh, which gives information about use of medications during breastfeeding. So Moira, I've done lots of talking. What's your clinical tip for the month? Well, I think it's just a reminder to, to us all and particularly, um, I suppose, the medical people listening who might be the ones who are not prescribing now and what are they going to do instead to remember the, the benefits of the non-drug strategies. Uh, and if you don't have a team around you of psychologists, et cetera, to, uh, to, to, to know where to send people or, you know, to, to arm them with strategies and, and websites and, and mindfulness and, and exercise. And, but also to remember that this pregnancy period, it's a whole new era for them, this, this woman and their partner and family. A bit like us in the pandemic era that we realised we pull back a little bit from all the normal life and in pregnancy they pull back a bit from perhaps from all the, all the stuff they were trying to do and, and work included and that they can surprise themselves. All parties can be surprised at how you can actually perhaps just rest a bit more, more scheduled naps, less stress, more meditation, more gentle walks, more laughter and things probably you know will, will be okay and a lot of reassurance and just a time of reassurance, perhaps more time in these consult. Um, just more education. 
So, Dave, what's your pick of the month? Uh, well, I've got another Christopher Barnes paper. I really love his research, which is very much about mm. leaders, managers, and how their behaviour mm. impacts on the sleep, not just of them, but of people who they who work under them and work around them and with them. Uh, so, this paper was uh, published last month uh, in uh, Sleep, the Sleep Health Journal, and looked at the whether leaders devalued sleep. So whether they really had that bravado about, you know, come on. Sleep when you're dead. Sleep when you're dead, you know, <laughs> rise and grind, you know, <laughs> work while others are sleeping, crush the opposition, you know, that that type of yeah. ethos. And yeah. the leaders who devalued sleep, essentially it had a negative impact on employees' sleep. They didn't sleep as well and the employees mm. actually engaged in more unethical behaviour in the workplace so they really, wow. um, not only did they devalue sleep, they devalued ethical behaviour in, in how they went about their work. So, wow. Yeah, really powerful impacts. Mm. And so it just highlights the importance of how important it is for leaders to be positive role models for sleep. Yep. And the disappointing thing is you then look at our politicians and some of our other leaders and they're not necessarily good positive role models for sleep. So I really like that research. What about for you, Maura? What's your pick? Well, I'm excited about, we've just both been told recently, just, just tonight in fact, um, uh, about a project that's um, up and running at Monash University in Melbourne here. Uh, and it's called the NIGHT Project, which is uh, stands with an acronym for Novel Insomnia Treatment Experiment. And we'll put, some, we'll put a link to it and it's, um, we'll, we'll talk a bit more about it in the coming months. But it's just really nice. It's it's a research project that's going to be what is looking at insomnia and looking at wearables and you know devices for more tracking sleep. And we all know my I'm a bit of a luddite with that, uh, and David's much more all for all for it. Absolutely, I've always got this always got this caution around it, thinking it increases anxiety and all that sort of stuff, which is which is valid. Um, but so it's nice to see that they're integrating it, looking in looking at people with insomnia uh, and looking at using wearable devices and having some education and support around what the feedback, like the data that's there. Because so, I'm always worried about that the data that's there sometimes is misinterpreted or sometimes it's uh, just plain wrong, inaccurate. Uh, and so, yeah, I'm really excited about that. That's a, a great opportunity for, for all of us to learn more about how that can help with our sleep in the community in general. Yeah, I'm excited about that project and it looks really interesting. So thanks very much for listening to the podcast. Uh, we've got episodes coming up uh, on sleep and pain. And I've also had a number of people asking me about doing an episode on parasomnias. So strange things that happen yes. during sleep. And I, I also, we had a nice request via email. I didn't send you that, Moira, of someone asking about, you know, hypersomnias post-COVID infection. And I, mm, I reckon that's going to be a thing that I may well see yeah. a number of people with that, but it's early for that. So we mm. barely understand what COVID infection does as yet, let alone the, the sequelae yeah. or the, the long But the fatigue, effects. yeah, certainly the fatigue slash hypersomnia exactly. seems to be really prolonged in, in quite a few people. So, so that would be interesting. Yeah, so we'll come to that, but I think we need a bit more data, data first. Mm. Don't forget there's the uh, ASA, Australasian Sleep Association, have got a um, webinar series, which is great, up and running. They've had um, the first couple. There's a two, two more coming up in June, one with um, Nat Marshall and one with myself. 
Um, so get on board. Look at the ASA websites for more details on that. So send us any suggestions for further episodes at podcast at sleephub.com.au and recommend the podcast to your friends and colleagues. You can also write a review, of course, on Apple Podcasts and subscribe via any podcast streaming service or app. Thanks a lot. So thanks for listening. See you next month. This podcast is not intended as a substitute for your own independent health professional's advice, diagnosis or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider within your country or place of residency with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. 